Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse is Pastor David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan. Thankful for those who are listening this evening. Hope you enjoyed the program. Now, Pastor, before we get to our topic for the evening, we have a question that has come in from a listener since the last program. And here's the question... Hi, I have a question for Pastor Murphy. I married a man not for love, but for papers. I have since then been saved, but still don't love the man I am married to. What do you think I should do? I try to love him, but I can't. But I have gotten involved with a different man that I love very much. However, he is married. I know it's not right. Please tell me how I can stop. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but the other man keeps coming on to me. What can I do? I am listening to you on the radio. Very open, honest question, Pastor. What are your thoughts? Well, I. This situation, by the way, is is, is not something that is novel or new. Um, people marrying people for the wrong motives. Um, some people marry for security. Some marry for status. Uh, some marry uh, out of panic. They're getting too old and are worried of not finding a partner. Of course, some people marry for raw sex, and others uh, try sometimes get married to escape home life and family restrictions. So the motive here, clearly in this case, is not a, a, a biblical motive, is not even a proper motive for marriage. But clearly this person has, vo- has married because I suspect this person is an, a non-Antiguan, uh, I don't know if a, a Jamaican or, or a Guyanese. This is a problem that we had in Barbados several years ago when Guyana was going through uh, serious economic problems. A lot of Guyanese had come to Barbados and they were marrying Bayesians. And within a short space of time, like two years, they were divorcing. But meanwhile, they had married these Bayesians to bring over their family. So this is a very common problem, uh, not only here in Antigua, but certainly in the Caribbean. Um, I would say uh, to this person, basically, that whether you married out of a good motive or a right motive or whatever, uh, marriage is a, a contract. It's supposed to be a permanent contract that God has uh, stipulated. Um, so you are married whether you're married for the right reason or for the wrong reason. Uh, before God, uh, you're married. You've made vows uh, before God. So your marriage is legitimate. The problem is that you're married to a person that you have discovered that you 
um, don't love. Now, I'm not too sure what you mean by don't love, to be honest with you. Um, are you talking about not having deep emotional feelings for the person? Uh, are you saying that you don't find the person attractive? Um, I, I, I'm trying to decipher exactly what you mean by love. Um, so if you don't, if you mean that you don't have emotional feelings for the person, eh, well, uh, that is not the definition of, of biblical love. That's why I'm trying to ascertain what type of love you're talking about. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are people all over the world that are married uh, and married. Their parents make arrangements for the marriage. They never met the person. Don't have any emotions attached to the person, but who've had successful marriages. As a matter of fact. Uh, I would hazard a guess that most of those marriages last much longer than we in the West who are so romanticized. So it's possible for you to marry a person you don't have genuine, authentic feelings for, but you can grow into loving that person. So the fact that you don't love them now doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity to love them later. You went on to say that you, uh, you want to love them, you can. Do you mean you can or you won't? Uh, that's something that you have to try to work out in your, in your thinking. Because I am of the persuasion that if you are a Christian, as you said, that you became a saved person, I'm of the opinion that um, this thing could work out, but it would require a lot of effort on your part and certainly some reciprocal um, moments on your husband's part. Uh, as far as the biblical application that would uh, re- relate to this passage, uh, to your incident, I think that... Um, Corinthians chapter 7 is very helpful in this regard. Uh, in Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking to uh, people who uh, were married to unsafe people, and they thought that when they got saved, they could jump ship and maybe start over. Uh, and so they were looking at Christianity as a way out of a, a kind of a mess. And now I'm saved, so I don't want to be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. So it was convenient for people to make professional faith and then use that as a basis to get out of a relationship that they weren't fond of. And Paul was asked to address this issue. And I think what he says is relating to to your situation. Listen to what he said in in, uh, Corinthians chapter 7. He said, Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. So if you're married, uh, Paul is saying whether you married a saved person and then you, uh, 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 or whether you were married and you had were unsaved person, then you got saved. Paul said, for those who are married, I I I command you, yet not I the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Then in verse eleven he says, but if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So. You've got a choice here then. If you don't want to remain within the marriage, as, as Paul talks about in this passage, uh, and you were to um, separate from your husband, you must remain in an unmarried state, or you must be reconciled to your husband. That's what Paul says. And then he said in verse number 12, But to the wife, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. And what Paul means here is that the Lord, this is not a, a subject the Lord dealt with um, the Lord gave any, did not give any specific directions in his in the Gospels concerning this new situation. He says, um, "If any any brother have a wife, and believe, that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away." So, here's a situation where 
a person is married, uh, he comes to Christ, and now he wants to get out of the relationship. But Paul said you can't do that. If the unsafe person wants to remain within the marriage, you have to stick with the marriage. He goes on and, and says further, And the woman which have an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let him leave. Uh, let her not leave him. So uh, clearly, um, you are a Christian now. You married this gentleman before you were Christian. You've now become a believer, and you are seem to me that you're looking for a door out of this relationship. But uh, Paul makes it clear that if this person wants to remain with you, you should remain with that person. Paul goes on later, by the way, to say that the wife may be the instrument of leading the man to faith in Christ. Uh, so he's looking at it from a salvific point of view and not just looking from a mere sentimental or emotional point of view. Uh, he's looking at it from an eternal perspective. So I would say to you, uh, madam, that you're married. You might have married for the wrong reason. Uh, you've discovered that you don't have the emotional uh, ties to this person that you're married to. And uh, you want to know what you should do. Well, Paul said you should remain within the marriage. You said, I try to, to love him, but I can't. I don't think you can't. Um, I just think you won't or you don't want to, but you can love a person. You know, the Bible tells us to love our enemies. Now, if we can love our enemies, surely we can love our husbands, we can love our wives. So there has to be some way that a change can be brought about and maybe the emotions that are dormant can be stirred, but there are certain practical things that would need to be done. And then you went on to mention that um, uh, you got involved with somebody else and you love this person very much, but this person is married. So you've now compounded the problem. You have now um, not only been unfaithful to your husband, be unfaithful to your God, because you've now taken another partner, you've brought a third party into the relationship. Now, may I suggest to you that if you're looking uh, towards this new person you've found uh, for marriage, could I say to you, it's not going to work. You are courting disaster. Any married man that would sleep with another married woman uh, is in a state of unfaithfulness and infidelity. And I can bet you my last dollar that this person that you're involved in is not only involved with you and his wife, but he's involved with a third and a fourth party and a fifth party. Uh, and I don't see um, any future in it for you. So I would suggest to you that you try to break off this relationship. Um, and you, you, you mentioned as well that um, you want to, but it keeps coming uh, after you or whatever it is. It seems to me that you are in an environment where you are actually seeing this person. Uh, I'm not too sure if it's the work environment. I'm not too sure um, if it's maybe a part of an organization that you come into contact with. But the, the best way to deal with this world is to sever the relationship and avoid contact. Run, baby, run. You can't have a dialogue about um, infidelity and sexuality with a person who is uh, try keeping on to you. Uh, you can't win that argument. The best thing to do is to run, get away from that situation. And if you are working with him, it, if it is possible that you can find a different job and move away from that situation, but you've got to build yourself out of the environment. You clearly are, are have a, a great emotions for this person. You've been involved 
sexually as well. So it's very, very obvious that there are strong attachments there. And when it comes to sexuality, you don't play games with that. This is something that needs some kind of severance. Radical action is required. Some kind of severance, moving away, getting away from the person, cutting off all phone calls. Um, don't contact them to the Internet or to the computer or to the iPhone. Uh, end the relationship. It's going to be perilous for you and for your family. Now, I don't know if this is part of the situation, but I'm asking hypothetically sure. here. What if this individual that she has gotten involved with is a family friend, someone who would stop by the house, uh, who would interact with her and her husband? How do you tactfully cut off ties? Obviously, she probably doesn't want to go to, maybe she needs to, but probably doesn't want to go to her husband and say, listen, I've gotten involved with this other man. We need to stop being friends with him. What do you suggest there? I, I wouldn't recommend that she pursue that immediately because I think that could probably terminate the marriage on his part because of inf infidelity on her part. Um, uh, listen, there are times when we just have to do radical amputation. Our, our Lord said, you know, if your right hand offend you, uh, cut it off. Of course, he's talking about taking radical steps to deal with whatever it is that is a f causing you to offend, it will take you to hell. Uh, there may not be an easy solution to this problem. If it was a family friend that was coming by, um, I probably... Uh, in terminating relationship with the lady, I would tell him that if he didn't terminate it, I would have to inform my husband what is happening, and he's taking advantage of me. Uh, uh, I would have to at least bring my husband. I would use some means to, to so that he understands I'm serious about it. But if if nothing is done, uh, if you have slept with a man twice and sleep with him a third time, uh, there is a chemistry between you and this person. And it's inevitable that it's going to happen again and again and again. You become addicted. Uh, so the best thing to do is to take radical steps. If you have a pastor, uh, your pastor, and uh, you could speak to him in confidence, uh, he might be the middleman that might be able to talk to the third party and, and, uh, and try, try to resolve this issue as amicably as possible. But something has to be done. If it, it, it can't continue in this state, and I think it's going to get worse, your attachment's going to get much greater, and it's going to lead you further and further into sin. Now, let me mention this, that what you're doing is willful sin. Uh, you mentioned that you got married for the wrong reason, to get papers, then you got saved. So you are now a saved person, and now you are now messed up your life with a third party. So you know better than that. You know that um, infidelity is wrong. You know unfaithfulness to your partner is wrong. I would say to you that you need to examine your life before God. Um, uh, pray and ask the Lord forgiveness. Uh, confess uh, what you're doing as sin. And if it hasn't hit you as strongly as it should, ask God for brokenness, that he would bring conviction in your life to really see this thing as sin as it is. And um, asking to really bring about a true change in your life. And I would say to you, you might need to do some kind of reorganization of your life. Uh, and what I mean by that, um, if, it's you, if it's a place you go that you meet this guy, uh, is it necessary to travel that route now? Or can you reroute the way you travel? Um, you might need to do some structural change in your life. And then, if you had a good Christian friend, uh, maybe a, a, a lady. I wouldn't recommend a man in your case because clearly uh, 
there's a weakness there for the opposite sex, I would prefer that you get a, a strong lady who you can deal with, who can hold you accountable. And what I mean by that is if you're going to bring up change in your life and she needs to call you and say, you know, did you talk to him, uh, talk to the third party, did you, I hope you didn't see him today, uh, did you do anything? That, in other words, uh, hound you down and hold you accountable for being faithful to your husband. And then the other thing I would like to say to you, you need to now focus on your marriage. And there are some things that you would need to do to try to... Um, change the atmosphere and the relationship between you and your husband. If there is no love, you're saying to me there's no feelings and no affection. That needs to change. Now, uh, you women are responders, and I'm not too sure what your husband is doing that is creating this coldness on your part. But uh, he would also have to start doing some specifics, practical things, uh, to try to bring about the emotional change in your life. We can't work on emotions directly. We can't work on feelings directly. You can't touch feelings. But it's action that changes feelings. And if we would change our actions and our attitude, feelings begin to be generated. Uh, there's a classic example of this, by the way, in the book of Genesis, where uh, the Lord is speaking to Cain. Cain is, of course, very, very angry. He's very, very upset. And the Lord told uh, Cain that um, his countenance would change if he did right. His emotions would change, his anger would change, his resentment would change if he began to do, do right. That's, in other words, action, change in action and change in behavior produces change in emotions. And this is what would have to happen in case of your husband. I'm not too sure if he's aware that you don't love him, but it'll be hard for me to conceive that um, you're not showing any kind of emotion to him, that he hasn't picked this already, that you're probably tolerating him. Uh, he may need to seek counsel uh, to sit down with someone and really chat with them and say what he can do. Uh, there's some practical things that can be done in his part. And as I said, women are responders. If he shows you affection and, and tries to change whatever behavior or whatever is not pleasant to you or whatever, uh, try to find out what your love language is and try to speak the same language that you speak. Um, I think that you will find that it is possible that a loveless relationship can become uh, a dynamic uh, relationship of love, but it will take some time and some effort. I don't mind, uh, madam, having a chat with you. And I have your telephone number. Uh, the only reason I haven't spoken to you before uh, is because I wanted to respond to your question first and then call you later because I'm not too sure how you'll respond to my response. Uh, but I believe that you can be helped. I believe that your marriage can be salvaged. And I really hope that you're prepared to put the hard work that's required into saving your marriage. And I do hope that um, your husband as well uh, can be brought into the picture at some point in time uh, so that he can understand uh, his role in trying to change the dynamics within your relationship so that you can have a happy marriage. As I was listening to you, Pastor, I was thinking that, at least from my perspective, the best way to fight the temptation of this other man, other than radical steps, is to find true satisfaction in her marriage and building up that relationship and her marriage, as you were saying, so that that's where she goes to for satisfaction and for that companionship 
rather than this outside man. The other thing too, Nathan, is the fact that if this lady is a true Christian, and she's truly saved, she has to work on her relationship with God. There's no question about Mm. that, right? Without, you know, look, I, I tell people this. If you can't be faithful to God, you cannot be faithful to any man indefinitely. Something will happen. Your faithfulness to God is connected to your faithfulness to your partner. So what you need to do is to build a relationship with God and get right with God, start to live for God. And God has transforming power to change hate into love and dislike into affection. And God can do this. The, the God's power, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got God's Word, you've got God's people, you've got the church. Um, there's no reason for you to terminate your marriage. Um, you need to work on it. And if you're prepared to work on it, um, and you would like me to try to help you, uh, I am more than willing to try to see what I can do to assist you. But I would caution you uh, to tell your husband what's been going on and the infidelity. It it could be very, at this point in time, it could really be explosive. Uh, At some juncture in your life, uh, you have to come truthful with your husband. But uh, the timing for that is crucially important. So you, you have to be very careful at the same time but um, let's start with small changes and let's work on it and uh, I can assure you that if you're a true, genuine Christian that wants to do God's will I am absolutely sure there's hope for your marriage and hope for your relationship How do I know if I'm a true, genuine Christian or not? I always uh, tell people this Look, you don't get up one morning out of bed and just say I'm going to be a Christian Uh, The Lord has to be working in your life, bringing you to the point of conviction about your sin and your need for Him. Uh, Sometimes it takes, He's been working on a long time. Sometimes there's so many different ways He can be working. Sometimes you've got a friend at work that keeps annoying you. Sometimes it's a book that you read. Sometimes a television program. Sometimes a sermon you hear. But whatever happens, you have to have some discomfort about your condition before God and your need of forgiveness and pardon. Um, Once that begins to happen, that shows a genuine work of God trying to bring you to faith and trust in Christ because in your unsaved state, uh, you and I would know that before we became Christians, we can sin with impunity. Uh, All we were concerned about is satisfying the flesh, getting the best out of whatever it is, and we weren't too concerned about the results. Uh, After we become Christians, the concern is that I'm a changed person, I'm a new believer, uh, God is my Father, I am God's Son, uh, God saved me from sin, He didn't save me to encourage me to sin, and therefore there's discomfort when I sin uh, as a believer. And I hope that there is, um, in your heart, uh, Madam, that there is this way. You did give me a good sign here when you said, uh, um, Oh, yeah, please tell me how to stop. I don't want to do it, okay? But it keeps coming back on me. I, I mean, to very clear that you're concerned. A, you're worried, not well, not necessarily worried, but you recognize that this is wrong. This is not something you should be doing. That's a good sign that you're conscious that going in this direction is contrary to God's will, contrary to your marriage contract and your marriage vows. Uh, and the other thing is, Nathan, I would I would say is that 
you've come to that point where you recognize that you need pardon and forgiveness. You're willing to ask God to forgive you. And this, to my mind, is crucial. You're really understanding that when you become a Christian, you're turning your life over to Him. I think that is crucially important, that you understand you're turning your life over to Him, and uh, your desire is to live for Him and to serve Him. The idea of coming to God just to escape hell bothers me enormously. Uh, I cannot conceive that I just want to get, of course, I want to escape hell. But I also understood when I got saved that I was committing my life to serve the Lord and live for Him. And I think that is important as well uh, for a person. So you need to ask Christ as your Savior, uh, trust Him, and uh, commit your life to living for Him. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Now, Pastor, one other question that I was recently asked, uh, and the listener wanted you to share your thoughts, was what do you think about women wearing short skirts or low-cut tops, especially when they're going up on stage at church? Or maybe it shouldn't be, what do you think? What does the Bible have to say yeah. about it? Well, the, the Scripture is very clear that modesty is the standard for, for dressing within the church, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, if people want to know what modesty is, I think it's very, very simple. Uh, in the Old Testament, when God was going to punish Israel, and God wanted to shame Israel, embarrass Israel. He said that he would um, he would expose their thighs. The thigh is the region from your knee up to your crotch. I think that is where modesty, anything between your knee, above your knee, and um, and I think that's that's the area where modesty needs to be defined. Um, I, I think it's improper for women to wear these um, tight skirts, short skirts. By the way, I, I met a, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but I met um, a person this week, uh, last week, sorry, um, that I knew very well from within our circle. And uh, the person is now working at a different company. And when I met the person, I had to keep my head looking up. I could not believe that uh, the person was dressed, and this person is married. Uh, I was shocked, totally shocked. I mean, there was no discretion whatsoever. It was as though she is on a fashion parade, wanting to expose her legs so that people be drawn attention to. I think that's completely immodest, and I think for a married woman, uh, I think it is putting, um, provoking men to lust creating thing, But I don't think it is proper. If I was a pastor, that couldn't happen. At least, if it has happened in our church, I'm not conscious, conscious of it. But if I, I notice it, I would draw attention to it. And these low-cut things where there's more in, more out than in, and uh, you've got these bulging pitons, uh, and, and you know, I, I think this is indecent. I think that it is shameful. Uh, I don't know if you notice, but even in the Old Testament, a woman could not walk on the altar. The Bible says she would uh, expose her shame to God. So I think that is significant, that, that uh, God in His holiness was offended by that. And I, I think this idea of um, short skirts and short pants and 
um, these blouses that just cut below the line and all this um, mammary glands projecting, I, I think it's, it's downright wrong. I think it is inappropriate. And I wish that churches would take a, a firmer stand on these matters because God is concerned about how we dress. He's concerned about how we dress in the Old Testament. He's concerned about how we dress in the New Testament. He demands modesty in the book of Timothy. So to say that it doesn't matter how I dress and that God is not concerned about how I dress is to miss both the Old Testament teaching and New Testament teaching. I would point out one other thing. Some years ago, um, I had a, a team uh, helping us with a, a, uh, building a church. Um, and I had a chance to talk to the one of the persons. I wouldn't say who because it might be, be people might be able to identify who the person is. But I asked the question: What was the biggest problem in the churches in America, as far as the men are concerned? I want to know exactly what it was. And um, they said, the gentleman said to me, Pastor, the problem is lust. I said, What do you mean by lust? And what he said, the way these women came in, come into the church with the tight pants, and you are in the back of the back of them, their botox is plastered. I mean, their shape, everything is outlined. They are moving, and here you are trying to worship God and focus on God, but you find it difficult from looking at their shape, their body, whatever it is. There are distractions. He shocked me when he told me that. But uh, that explains to some extent why morality is so low in the church. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have lowered our standards. We have not maintained the biblical concept of modesty. And now, in order to um, be, be relevant, in order to win a popular crowd and to draw the audience, we are sometimes negligent of saying to people, this doesn't seem appropriate. Now, of course, I would recommend that if you do that, you do that in private. Uh, if it becomes necessary after two or three warnings, you might do it in public. But don't try to embarrass the person because some people don't even know what modesty is. They may not even know how they attempted you as an individual. But I think a lot, of more that, a lot more of that needs to be done in terms of warning and talking to people. And I think once they become aware um, any decent woman, any godly woman, would not want to put herself in the ear uh, to tempt men. And uh, of course, the problem with women is that women don't understand that men are different from women. Women are pretty much um, aroused by touch, men by sight. I mean, that's a that's a common difference between the two sexes. But women seem to ignore that. Uh, and, and for that reason, I think that um, inadvertently, very frequently, they become instruments and agents of temptation, uh, and they may not be even aware of it. Follow-up question to that. Should there be, is modesty just something I should be worried about when I'm standing on the stage at church or in the congregation at church, or should I also be worried about it when I'm on Market Street? Modesty is not just a church issue. Uh, modesty is, should be common for the believer in all aspects. Um, I, I would want to be modest in church. I also want, want to be modest in my workplace. And by the way, infidelity, the, 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 the commonest place of infidelity is the workplace. And, uh, and if people are not aware of that, I'm making aware of it now. <laughs> that is why uh, there are so many breakdowns of marriages. When women weren't working 
and there were new homes, there was not that much infidelity, but no women are in the workplace. And one of the biggest problems that they face is that women are always looking towards leadership. And once they find strong male leadership in their workplace, um, that becomes an avenue for uh, a, a relationship to start. But um, it, it matters um, that you're modest, not just in church, but outside of church. I mean, you want to have a testimony. And by the way, where is your testimony more important? Out in the world. Out in the world. Yeah. Right? Out in the world. Where you can shine. Where you can shine, right? Uh, um, of course, in church, you should be aware of that. But again, think of where your testimony is more important. You're trying to reach the unsaved person for the Lord, and you don't reach the unsaved person for the Lord by being like him or being like her. It's your difference that is attractive. This week, we're going to be covering the topic of the uniqueness of Christ. And at the end of last week's program, as I was kind of uh, promoting the topic for this week, Pastor, I said that it's a topic that affects our everyday life. But this is a doctrinal issue. Do you really believe that doctrine affects our everyday life? I not only believe it affects everyday life, I think that it's, it's, it's biblical to draw that assumption. Um, one of the things that you would notice in the Pauline epistles and uh, Peter as well, that there are always basically two sides to an epistle. There is the first section, and then there is the last section. The last section is always practical. It's always drawing some practical issue, dealing with some practical problem. The first section is always doctrinal. And the order is significant. Paul deals with doctrine, and then out of that doctrine, he draws the practical application of that doctrine for life. So he never starts with the practice because his practice comes out of doctrine. And that is very, very clear that uh, doctrine uh, or beliefs is what directs and controls our behavior. Um, so it's important for us to have correct doctrine because without correct doctrine, we're not going to have correct practice. And uh, the Pauline method uh, is indicative of how important doctrine is for uh, uh, the believer in terms of his practical life. Have you taken time to encourage someone to listen to That's Truth? If you haven't, go ahead and send a WhatsApp or text message. We still have just over 50 minutes left in the program tonight. You can send a WhatsApp or a text message, encourage someone, hey, tune in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The program That's Truth is on the air. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? You can call and be put live on the air. The number is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd like to send a WhatsApp or text, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, as we talk about the uniqueness of Christ. Let's start with his prophetic forecast or the prophecies that were very detailed leading up to even before he was born on this earth. Uh, let me uh, make a few other comments just before we yeah, come to yeah, that. Go for it. Um, I hope that those who are listening understand that uh, the central theme, the central purpose, the central focus uh, an essential person of Christianity is Christ. Christ is Christianity, and Christianity is, is Christ. There is no Christian faith without the person and the work of Christ. Uh, he is central 
uh, to Christianity. Other religions, uh, you could go on and follow the doctrine and the teaching and totally ignore the person. Uh, Christianity is not just about doctrine, it's not just about his teaching, it's about the very person of Christ. He is central to Christianity. He's not just a great teacher, he's not just a mere prophet, he's not one of the many manifestations of what they call cosmic consciousness, as New Age people said. He's not just some kind of a demagogue or some kind of an enlightened man. Uh, he is the God-man, he is the save the world, and he is the coming king. So I hope that when we are discussing him and his uniqueness, we understand that he is the unparalleled, unique one, the divine human person, and uh, he alone uh, has eternal life. Uh, all in him are safe, all outside of him are lost and without hope, and to ignore him is to be is dangerous, to deny him is perilous, but to reject him is fatal. So it's important that we understand who he is and why he's such a unique person. So when it comes now to the question of his uh, prophetic forecast, the, how unique this is, uh, we are talking about the fact that long before uh, he came to earth as a human being, uh, that the prophecies of Scripture are so many and so specific and so detailed that uh, there's no other human being whose uh, life or whose birth uh, compares with him. He's completely unparalleled in terms of the uniqueness of the prophetic forecast about his coming. Um, the details are very specific. For example, his lineage, uh, his pedigree. We know that he will come to Abraham, he will come to Jacob, he'll, he'll come to uh, David, he'll come to the uh, uh, line of Solomon. Uh, he is the Messiah because he comes to the Davidic line, which is the, the royal line and the kingly line. It's interesting that um, Luke traces him back to Adam. Matthew traces his genealogy uh, back to Judah and, and, and uh, David. Of course, a promise was made to Adam and Eve that the seed would come who would bruise the serpent's, uh, crush the serpent's head. So that promise that was made to Adam was fulfilled, and that is why Luke traces his genealogy back to Adam. David was promised that one would sit on his throne, uh, and it would be an eternal throne. That's why Luke, uh, Matthew, sorry, traces his genealogy to um, Judah and through to David. But his lineage, uh, you would know the Messiah was coming because he has to come to a distinct line, and that line is traced throughout the Bible from Genesis right through until he finally comes. And Matthew begins with 14 generations from David, to, uh, Adam, uh, from Abraham to David, from David to Christ. Uh, so his lineage, uh, and then his birthplace, uh, the specific place to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, Michael uh, prophesied that he would be born in this specific place. And then the time he would be born, if you check the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, uh, that deals with the 70 uh, weeks of years, uh, we knew exactly when he would be cut off, uh, Daniel tells, so we would have had the approximate time when the Messiah would have come. And of course, what his career would be. Uh, he was coming to die as a lamb, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, to the slaughter. And we are given great details in Isaiah chapter 53 about his death. And then his purpose uh, was to come to redeem and to save the world. And then we are also told the nature of his death. It would be a substitutionary death. 
that's all given in the prophetic writings about him. He will die for man, he'll die in man's place. And of course, the glorious resurrection is also prophesied. So, all of these prophetic forecasts about his lineage, his birthplace, the time he would be born, the career he would pursue, the purpose in his coming, the nature of his death, his resurrection, hundreds of years before, uh, some far as far as 800 years, like Isaiah, a century prophet, uh, um, these prophecies were made concerning uh, his coming. There's no other human being now, past, or ever uh, that would have this kind of a uh, prophetic forecast with such details, such minute details, such specificity, so that when the Messiah comes, there'd be no doubt who the Messiah would be. I have a list in front of me here of 40 religious leaders, some of whom claimed themselves to be the reincarnation or Jesus, uh, and some who didn't claim it themselves, but their followers claimed. 40 people since the 18th century, and this is not a comprehensive list, who have claimed to be Jesus Christ. Well, did he not say, many shall come in my name, there be many false Christs, so yeah. we can expect that. Matthew chapter 24 gives great detail about uh, the false Christ that would come, um, just fulfilling the, the prophecy. But again, if you want to know who the Messiah is, uh, you know he has to come to a distinct line. He has to be born in a certain place. He has to be born at a certain time. He has to fulfill in his death a type of death. He has to be crucified. He has to be nailed to the cross. There's nobody that came after Christ that claimed to be Messiah, that there's no form of, of uh, capital punishment today that is with nails and with crucifixion. So nobody can qualify as the Messiah. See, The only thing that's uh, probably happening, as you said there, there's now this bogus doctrine of reincarnation and maybe we need to explore that at some point in time why this doctrine is not in the scriptures and why it is false but uh, clearly for anyone to have the credentials of the Messiah you must have this meet this prophetic forecast that give all these unique details about his coming you mentioned the prophecies about his birth and the the virgin birth do you want to expound on that anymore or do you want to go on and talk about the, the dual nature of, of Jesus Christ? Well, we could talk about the virgin birth. There's no, no, nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's another unique feature about him. I mean, you know, it's it's. Uh, I would recommend, by the way, there's a book called The Incomparable Christ, written by J. Aldo Saunders. I would suggest people to get that book. I have that book, but I, I couldn't uh, put my hand on it uh, to... Um, to get myself more equipped for this session because I just don't know where I've placed it because you know I've moved recently and I just can't find the book. Um, but I would recommend that's a very good book. And then Josh McDowell has one called He's More Than a Carpenter. Uh, that's a fascinating book as well. He talks about how he moved from agnosticism to become a true believer when he discovered who the true Christ was. But uh, he's not only unique in this prophetic forecast you talked about, he's also unique in, his, in the virgin birth. You know, when you read uh, mythology, ancient mythology, whether it be Greek mythology or um, some other form of mythology, there have always been tales about some kind of a demigod uh, the gods mating with man, you get a half god, half man, and a half god. Um, the virgin birth it stands unique alone because it's not that he's half god and half man. That Jesus Christ is fully God 
and fully man. He's the God-man. And he, at the same time. At the same time. We'll come to that when we talk okay. about his dual nature. But uh, for that to be true, he had to become a man. And uh, the Bible tells us very, very clearly that the, the Holy Spirit uh, implanted the seed in uh, Mary in his womb and that he was born a man in human flesh, yet without sin. He took up residence in embryonic form within the within human, uh, a virgin. And uh, the prophecy of Isaiah was that he would be born of a virgin. Uh, if you read Matthew and read the accounts, Mary said, how can this happen uh, since I've known no man? And uh, so he is unique in the fact that he is virgin born. There is no earthly father. Uh, there is a heavenly father, which is God. Uh, the Father, but there's no earthly father. And by the way, let me just make a clarification here. Mary is not the mother of God. Mary is the mother of Christ's humanity, See, but not the mother of God. I hope that distinction is, ma is made. Uh, she could not be the mother of God. Uh, but so, but people confuse that when they say that Mary is the mother of God. She is the mother of his human nature, but not of his divine nature. But that still gives authority for us to pray to her? Absolutely not. Uh, there is no mention anywhere in the Bible that uh, we should pray to Mary. As a matter of fact, Mary herself confessed that she was a sinner. She said uh, in the Magnificat, she talks about uh, Christ, God being her Savior. <laughs> if God is your Savior, it means that He saved you from sin. So she's acknowledging that she is sinned. There's no such thing as immaculate conception. All of these are bogus claims made by the Catholic Church and misleading people along a path that lead them down into idolatry where we pray to a woman, we genuflect to a woman, we, we have images of her, we say the rosary. Uh, all of this is false, and, and, and uh, no matter how you try to expose it, uh, it is so long ingrained in the minds of people, but they're not willing to go back to biblical theology to find out what the Bible really says, and therefore they continue in this uh, idolatrous practice of praying to her. But the fact is that he was virgin birth, and um, no one has ever, now, past, or ever, will have the same type of birth. And this is what makes him... And by the way, it's essential that he be virgin birth because he must be, as a man, without a sinful nature. Okay, he must have human nature, but not a sinful nature. And that is why the miracle of the Holy Spirit implanting the seed of life within the womb of Mary and thereby also protecting any... Uh, transfusion of the, the sinful nature into him. Um, he becomes like Adam, as Adam was born without sin. So now the second Adam who's come, he's also born without sin. So am I to understand you, you're saying that sin nature is passed down from the Father? We don't know exactly what the... the it's believed that the sin is, is passed on through the blood. And we know okay. that the, you get your blood through your, through your father. Uh, but there's still a mystery there. Um, but the, the truth of the matter, the, the fact is that he could not have a human father. Yeah. What miracle took place to prevent the passing on of sinful nature? Uh, this is part of the great mystery of our faith. But we know that he was uh, without sin, born without sin, and didn't have a sinful nature. He was b born like a man, assumed the, the nature of a man, yet with one, uh, uh, one thing absent, that is without sin. And that is necessary as well, because a sinner can't save a sinner. And uh, remember that he is called the last Adam. 
So he becomes the new federal head. And just as the first federal head was born without sin, made without sin, created without sin, now this second uh, person as well, the human part of him, is made without sin as well. Pastor John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That seems to be implying that God or Jesus Christ existed into eternity past. Is that a true statement? Yeah, well, that is, that is what the book is actually saying. Um, uh, actually saying. Um, if you were to study the Greek language, um, I'm re- thinking of a book right now that I read some years ago by... Um, Westcott, the Gospel of John, uh, he dealt with this first verse, and he shows that the what is actually trying to show you that before the beginning, he was there. Uh, the Greek language is structured in such a way that it is indicating that, in other words, he preceded the beginning. When time began, when space began, when 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 uh, what time, space, and energy began, he was prior to that. So he's eternal. Uh, but that's not only the only verse that indicates that he is eternal. Uh, Michael um, talks about who's going forth is from everlasting to everlasting, talking about the Messiah when he's going to come. Notice that who's going forth, who's, in other words, he precedes and he's coming from everlasting. He's eternal. Uh, uh, and that's the point there that he has as far as his nature is concerned, that he is not only divine, but also that he um, had a, a pre-existent life uh, before he came to planet Earth. And by the way, he's the only human that would have had a pre-existent human life because he's the eternal uh, Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Are there any other religious leaders, any other people on this list of 40 people who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ? Is there anyone else throughout all time that can claim that they have that uniqueness of being eternal? I, Unless they're mad or crazy, um, most of them would claim that they are a reincarnation of some God that existed before, um, Krishna. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And this guy, Rajneesh, was claiming that he's the reincarnation uh, of Krishna. Uh, but there is none, uh, re- no religious leader that pre-existed before. There's no religious leader that is eternal like Christ is eternal. And the Bible uh, lets us know very clearly that his going forth is from everlasting to everlasting and that he is the eternal Son of God. So that is unique in terms of his, his eternality. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Very good question. I thank you for the individual who sent it. Pastor, why do Christians repeat at the end of their prayers, in Jesus' name we pray, amen? Well, it's like a check. Um, You know, uh, uh, Christ said, anything you ask in my name, ask the Father in my name, it should be given uh, to us. So it's like, the the is that you got a check and I authorize you to draw on my account, uh, and on the basis of that you you um, you have the signature of my 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 signature. 
uh, it's quite similar to that. God has promised to answer the prayers that are asked in the name of Christ, and uh, that's the avenue through which we pray. Um, you find that he taught that, by the way, that we should ask in his name uh, through prayer. So that's why Christians pray in Jesus' name, because that is the authentic uh, sign-off, as it were, that um, makes it um, viable in heaven so that God can answer our prayer uh, because his authority, uh, the authority of Christ, is behind our prayer. Remember he said in uh, Matthew chapter 28, all authority and all power is given unto me, right? And then go ye and uh, preach in my name, etc. The name of Christ is a powerful name and um, even uh, not only in prayer but even in dealing with demons, you, you cast them out in the name of Jesus. Uh, that's the name that God has given to us to use when it comes to prayer. So would my prayer be double effective if I not only say in Jesus' name we pray amen, but I also did the cross myself as the Catholics do? I don't see any efficacy in the sign of the cross. I, I don't find support for it in the scriptures. Um, I am not too sure where the Catholic basis of that is. The Catholic Church, um, sad to say, is a mixture of a lot of Bible. There's no question about that. The the all the car most of the cardinal doctrines they hold to, but they've added to that traditions. They've added to that um, uh, paganistic practices as well. And sometimes because they're so meshed together, uh, people who within the Catholic Church are not aware what they're doing. They're just following what the priest says. Uh, I don't think, and I I speak under correction, but I would hazard a guess that most people going to establish churches hardly read the Bible. They're pretty much dependent on the priest or the pastor or whoever, the bishop. And uh, But in terms of following what he says and being like a Brian, is this true, is this not true, um, I don't think that it's being done today. And I think that, um, it, it, I, I tell people this, and I said this often, the most important decision in life is about my destiny. But people are so nonchalant, so callous, and so indifferent. It staggers me that where I'm going is dependent on what I believe. And uh, how can I be so casual about it and not want to find out if this is truth or not truth? It just bothers me that we are so callous about it. Being blinded by the enemy. Yeah, blinded by the enemy. But I also think there's a kind of a... Uh, tr a trust in the church, a trust mm -hmm. in a man, rather than actually trusting God, trusting what God says, because I'm just a medium. I'm just an instrument. There's no salvation in me. There's no salvation in any church, per se, save that church declares the gospel. But there are people that, because they're members of a church or belong to a church, they're assuming that they're automatically are going to heaven. And they're not studying the scriptures, looking at the scriptures for themselves. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? You can send it to via WhatsApp or text to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four, or if you'd like to call and be put live on the air, one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Thank you to the individual who sent that WhatsApp message in. This evening we're discussing the topic of the uniqueness of Christ, what makes him unique, and why we should be studying this. We've talked about the fact that he was born of a virgin, the prophetic or the prophecies that were leading up to his uh, existence here on this earth as a man. This is one that really 
intrigues me, Pastor, and it's that of the dual nature. You said earlier that Jesus came to this earth and was born a man. He was fully man. But at the same time, he was fully God. How in the world is that possible? I just can't wrap my head around that. And why is it important? Well, let me just read what Paul says in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believe on in the world, receive in the glory. Notice that Paul says that God was manifest in the flesh. So Christ, God, assumed human flesh. Um, so there is a dual nature. He's both God and he's both man. But he's not half man and half God. He's fully God and fully man. His natures are not commingled so that he is something other, uh, maybe a third nature. Uh, that's not what the, the, the position is. The Bible presents him as God and the Bible presents him as man. Uh, if you study his life and you read the Gospels, clearly he's presented there as a man who came to live. But again, when you go back to the, the teachings, uh, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, he is called God. He has all the attributes of God. So this is part of the, what Paul calls a mystery. Uh, this is beyond human comprehension, how he could uh, be both God and man at the same time, and the, the nature do not commingle. But the reason why it's important um, that he be both man and God because only a man could die for the sins of man because man is the one that committed sin so you have to have what is called a kinsman redeemer someone akin to me must be willing to die in my place but it cannot be a sinful man because a sinful man can die for sinful people so he has to be a sinless man on the other hand for his sacrifice to be efficacious and eternally applicable to everybody in the whole world, it has to be more than just a man. Not only that, in order for him to satisfy God in his holiness, and all, he has to be equal with God and have the same type of righteousness that God has. This is where Christianity, to my mind, is uh, the greatest science and the greatest philosophy when you think about it. That it you can, how could man have ever conceived this? Uh, it, to my mind, this is so unique that it puts Christianity a pale above all the others. And this is one of the great truths that we hold to as Christians and what makes Christianity unique. That our, our, say, our God came in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, assumed human form, died for man, but His righteousness and His holiness that apply to human can apply to every person's account because He's not just man now. He's God, and God is satisfied with His righteousness that He has. You're listening to That's Truth. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM. One other thing, uh, remember when He was born, and His name should be called Emmanuel, God with us? So that's the, nobody doubts that He was a man because he lived as a man. But now we're, 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 the area that people have had some problem with a lot of times, that how could he be God? But yet the Bible says he's God the Son, and he's God with us. He's come as, as God the Son. If this is such an important, unique characteristic of Christ, would you say that it has been often attacked? Yeah, if you check um, the heresies of the past, 3rd um, and 4th century heresies, 
the main heresies started around the person of Christ. Uh, who is he? There are some heretics that had him as a, a man only. There are some heretics that had him as God only. And those were labeled as heretical teachings. There's some that had that his two natures formed a third nature, and that was also heretical. There are names for these these uh, heresies like Nestorians, Eutychians, uh, um, the other ones that didn't come to my mind at this point in time. But these are heretical doctrines, and they're all centered around the person of Christ, uh, who this person is. And the church had to work that out, and eventually, uh, at the Council of Nicaea, I think it's 325, it, uh, it was, the doctrine was fully stated that he is fully God, fully man. There is no uh, core mixture within his personality and that um, he's not made, he's begotten of God, but he's not made, he's not created. He is the eternal son of God. Jesus Christ was sinless, correct? Correct. And how important is that to the fact that he is the Son of God, to the fact that he can be our Savior? Well, look, we're talking about how unique uh, Christ is uh, among all the other religious leaders or founders. There's no one else in history has ever claimed to be sinless. There's no one else in history that anyone, whatever the religious affiliation is, have ever claimed that their leader was sinless. Uh, all recognize that human beings have feet of clay and they all have a sinful heart. Yet this one, uh, Christ, uh, the Bible declares him to be not just the Bible, but his enemies as well as his friends, as well as he himself declared it. For example, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2.27, he did no sin, not one sin. Now, Peter knew him three and a half years. If anyone knew Christ, Peter would have known him. He did no sin. But didn't Christ get angry in the temple and he threw the money changers out and yeah. used a whip? We'll come back to that. Anger is not sin. It depends on the type of anger. Paul says, be angry and sin not. So there's such a thing as righteous indignation. Um, in the case where he... Um, overturned the tables, uh, platted the whip of, of, of uh, and uh, cast the people out, whipped them out. Again, uh, what, what, what was happening there? Here is God's house, intended to be a house of prayer. At this occasion, you've got all these Jews who come in all over the world who want to worship Jehovah God in the temple. But you've got people with a mercenary mind. They know that they need to get sacrifice, so they decide to create a bank in the church. And what do you do? You, you, you sell the people, the animals, but you are making profit. You're there, you're charging interest. In other words, you commercialize the church now. And um, where the, the money changes are is where the Gentiles should be. So now you're taking a space with, uh, to, uh, that's been cut out for the Gentiles, and now you now turn this into some kind of a um, um, business. And our Lord recognized what is happening, and He is God. He is also man. And uh, you remember what it says after He had done that. He go back to a prophetic word. He said, "The zeal of Thy house has consumed me." Isaiah had prophesied that His zeal for God's house would provoke him to take that kind of drastic measure. But that's not that's not anger out of control. 
That is righteous indignation. God himself gets angry. The, uh, you check the Old Testament. God had uh, been very patient, long-suffering. And then he comes to a point where he's had enough. Take the flood. Take when he judges Israel. So God's anger is uh, appropriate. Anger is appropriate. We ought to be able to be righteously indignant. The problem with us today is that we've lost the capacity to be angry any longer because we've lost our concept of holiness. So nothing offends us any longer and we try to accommodate. But there is such a thing as holy anger. And that was holy anger uh, when we had there in, in the book of Matthews. So if I'm frustrated about the legislation that has passed or about the decisions that were made or the way that our world is becoming more and more godless, you're saying that there's a time and a place to express anger. But how do I know that I haven't crossed that line in becoming, uh, in sinning by becoming angry? I don't know how we could define that. I think a lot has to do with your own um the, the, the cause behind it and uh, is it trying to get vengeance or is it just that you're so upset that kind of like God's being broken God, yeah, yeah God's holiness has been offended you know I, I would say to you that when it's more about your passion for God and his holiness rather than your own self I think that would be one of the ways of knowing when you cross the border uh, etc you're listening to That's Truth do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? You can call and ask it live on the air. The phone number is 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Pastor, we're talking about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, what makes him unique compared to all these other teachers, uh, religious leaders. Jesus Christ has some amazing teachings, and I'm trying to remember which gospel it is, but one of them says that the things that Christ did can't be numbered, aren't only yes, a portion John, of them. John, the last chapter of John, St. John. Yeah. yeah. But uh, before I jump there, yeah. uh, we were talking about his impeccable sin, sinlessness, and I, I was talking about the fact that it's not just his friends, his apostles, uh, but also his enemies and he himself. We talked about Peter. John, First uh, John 3, 5 says, In him is no sin. Again, this is John, the disciple that leaned on Jesus' breast, that um, uh, of all the inner circle, he's the one that the Bible says Jesus loved. Again, uh, John is a disciple of love. Uh, he himself is very able to make that kind of a statement that is no sin. Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 5 that he knew no sin. So he did no sin, in him is no sin, and he knew no sin. Even Judas himself in Matthew chapter 24 said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And then in Pilate, you remember in John chapter 18 verse 30, he said, <laughs> when he examined him, he said, I find no fault in this man. So what it be, and then by the way, Christ Himself uh, said in John chapter eight verse twenty nine, "I do always those things which please my Father." I do always those things, and then He asked the question, "Which of you convicted me of sin?" And no man could put the finger. So this is this His impeccable uh, sinful na sinless nature is one of the other unique features about Christ. But this is important, uh, Nathan, because, as I pointed out, 
if there's going to be a lamb, uh, a sacrifice, sacrifice for the sins of the world, remember under the Old Testament economy, when they had to choose a lamb to sacrifice for the sins, whether it be the trespass, it's trespass offering or the sin offering, it had to be what? Spotless. Spotless. It had to be uh, impeccable, basically. Uh, it had to be, the whole idea is this was a pre, um, what you might call a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the, of the standard that God was requiring for the Messiah to come, that when he, when he did come, that he would be a perfect sacrifice. All of the Old Testament sacrifices had to be as perfect as possible, and the Bible specified the feet couldn't be broken, it couldn't be lame, it couldn't be sick, it had to be as perfect as possible. All of this was pointing finally to the, the Christ who came. And John said in John one twenty nine, when he saw him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He could not have been sinful or have a sin nature or practice sin and be the Lamb that died for the sins of the world. But that's because he was God. He wasn't tempted like me, was he? Well, the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, there are three avenues of temptation. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, when we have the temptations, you'll find that all three of those avenues were exploited by the devil when he was in the wilderness. You remember the one lust of the flesh? Uh, you're hungry, so turn these stones into bread. Uh, satisfy a need. Now, he has all the power to satisfy a need. But again, to do so is to act independent of God. Remember that when he came as a man, he came to live as a man. Christ never uses divinity to help himself. Every occasion where he's using his divinity in the, in the Gospels, he's assisting and helping somebody. But he lived as a man would live. He lived as Adam would have lived, basically, because he has... Uh, he has to be, he is the second Adam, and he has to be uh, perfect. So he, um, he's tempted, but he never used the temptation. Uh, the pride of life, when he's thrown down, um, you know, cast yourself down. And of course, you get the adoring worship of these people. When you get up off, you, know, you just fall down and you, 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 know, you didn't die. And then, of course, off you all the kingdoms of the world, see. Uh, so the, the, every avenue of temptation he has faced. Uh, but he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So to say he wasn't tempted is uh, a misnomer, is a misunderstanding of the person of Christ. He was tempted. The teachings of Christ, what makes them unique compared to other, other spiritual leaders? Well, you remember on one occasion um, when he was teaching, um, someone tried to interrupt him and... They couldn't get him to, uh, they couldn't interrupt because they said, never man speak like this man. And they went back and told him, but we didn't tell you to bring him, but we couldn't bring him because he was so overwhelmed by his teaching capacity. But uh, as far as his teaching is concerned, uh, I think it's general knowledge that people are aware that the Sermon on Mount is without parallel in terms of, of any form of literature, any kind of... Uh, moral language or any kind of um, ethical teaching. I mean, it's, there's nothing to compare with the Sermon on the Mount. Even as critics and people who are atheists and agnostics, nothing comes to this level, uh, etc. And then, of course, when you look at the the beauty and the power and the content of the upper room discourse, uh, this also is peerless. 
you read John chapter uh, 15, 16, and 17. There's nothing like it anywhere. And then, of course, you come to that uh, majestic uh, prophecies of the Olivet Discourse, where he gives a whole outline of future history. Uh, nothing uh, compares with it. And who, by the way, have underestimated the power of his parables? Uh, who can duplicate that capacity, the way he spoke with, uh, in parables? There's a great gulf fix between Christ, the master teacher, and any other religious teacher prior to or after. Uh, there's no comparison whatsoever. It's genuinely accepted that he was the premier uh, teacher par excellence, uh, unequaled. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. I was doing some reading this afternoon and I came across this thought and it really really made me think hard. Jesus was a perfect example of humility to the extent of washing his disciples' feet, yet he made bold claims of deity. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the humility that it would take to be God, the Son of God, and get down on your hands and your knees? Uh, yeah. I appreciate you, Pastor. I love you, Pastor. <laughs> but to get down and wash your feet yeah. after you've been walking barefoot on a dusty road, that's humility. But yeah. then to be God and to do that same thing yeah. is is an amazing coupling of humility. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is, oh, I mean, incredible that um, act of condescension. But for me, Nathan, the, the one that is, uh, I, I still can't get over is here you are dying on the cross uh, you know why you you know you can call 10,000 angels you don't even have to call 10,000 angels you can speak a word and everything is over yeah. but then to have people pass by and say such words he saved others why don't he come down and save himself come down from the cross and if you come down from the cross we believe that you're the messiah uh, to have people mock you, you know, uh, to my mind, uh, that is the greatest humiliation. How how could I, you know, we could, how can you handle people spitting on you? I mean, you think about that for just a moment. In our, our human flesh, uh, there's so much we can take. But to have the power to change the dynamic there and then still because you came to die, the most ignominious death. And no matter what insults are thrown at you, no matter what is done to you, you stay there for the purpose of bringing about human redemption. Uh, think of the humiliation of you telling me, I can't save myself. You're challenging me. I look like a spectacle of total weakness when I have all the divine power in me to, to rectify the situation and I just stay there and take all the insults you throw at me. To my mind, that is the glory of the cross. Nothing equals that. Did Jesus Christ die for the sins of the men who crucified him? Or was it just for the men, all the rest of the men in the world? The Bible tells us quite clearly that Christ died for all sin. Past, present, and future. He is the sin offering. Those that crucified him, he died for. Uh, those that betrayed him, he died for. Those that denied him, he died for. He died for every single sinner, from Adam until the last person that is born. He, he died for the sins of the whole world. 
So I'm going to reference back to this list of sure. 40 people who claim to be a reincarnation of Christ or claim to be the Christ. All of them have a, well, almost all of them. Some of them haven't died yet because they were born in the 1960s, but they have a death, whether it's come or whether it is coming. Jesus Christ died. We're referencing that. What separated his death from the death of these 40 individuals? Well, the, the thing about his death is that he said, for example, no man take my life from me. I lay my life down and I take my life up. It's interesting, by the way, that after he had died, um, um, he said these words. Uh, he said, it is finished. And the Bible says he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. In the Greek language, you know what it means? That it said that he said it was finished, he bowed his and then he dismissed his spirit. In other words, he is in control. Hmm. You know, it, I've completed the work of redemption, now I just dismiss my spirit. It's not like us, we don't dismiss our spirit. We die when we don't even want to die, see. But here is one in perfect control, and there's no one. Uh, who could just dismiss the spirit as he did in that passage. But not only that, um, clearly the difference between his death and others' death is that uh, from the book of Genesis right through to the book of Malachi, there's a trail of blood that runs where the Messiah is promised to come and the Messiah is going to die on the behalf of his creatures. Uh, every single sacrifice that was done in the Old Testament, whether it be the sin offering, the trespass offering, or the peace offering, every or the Day of Atonement, every single sacrifice was pointing ultimately to the great sacrifice that Christ would make. And of course, that's why I said before in John chapter one twenty nine, when John said, "Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world." John understood that this is the one that would die for the world. So he he came to die. He didn't come to live. And he came to die of his own free will. Uh, uh, no one killed him. He voluntarily gave up his life for us. That's the difference. But also, uh, he is the specific death that brought about human atonement. And the one that God had predicted would die for the sin Not one of those 40 people that are there. Is there any prediction about their dying for the sins of anybody? They need somebody to die for their own sins. So Christ's death is unique. Uh, not only see the substitutionary death that God has selected as the lamb that would die, but as I spotted out to you, he is the one that actively controls and dismisses spirit after you've completed the work of redemption. No other person can make that kind of a claim. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.50. We still have eight minutes left in the program. Time for you to call in or WhatsApp or text your question. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text it, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, the phone line is available. The phone number is one 262 Pastor, his life didn't stop there at death. He resurrected from the grave. Why is that significant? Well, this uh, constitutes 
the uh, my judgment the greatest proof of his uniqueness uh, uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures but the Bible says he was raised for our justification and what that basically means that the only way that we would have known that God has accepted his substitutionary death for us is that there had to be vindication of that by the resurrection from the dead he himself said that he would die and rise from the dead if he had not risen from the dead and he had stayed in the grave he would never have been vindicated that he is the promised Messiah because the Psalms predicted that the Messiah would be raised from the dead David uh, talks about and is quoted in Acts chapter 2 that uh, his soul would not be left in, in Hades and his soul would not, uh, body would not see corruption uh, Peter in preaching on that passage said it could not be referring to David because David is dead and David's body is corrupted but it's referring to the Messiah that's to come so the Messiah must be resurrected but there is no justification apart from the resurrection uh, and that is important to understand that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are, are, are two sides of one coin you must have one and if you have one without the other you don't have full redemption but the resurrection is a final vindication that God has approved of Christ's sacrifice and God has accepted it on the behalf of human sin uh, that's why the resurrection is so important and by the way all those 45 people that you were talking about there uh, even though they may be venerated and uh, they'll have nice tombs at the end uh, not one of them not one of them can bring themselves out of the grave and remember that Christ said I lay down my life and I take it up see I am this is somebody that is in total control this is not man uh, what 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 man you know can make a statement <laughs> like that that I lay down my life and I take it up uh, this speaks of his his, um, his his real uniqueness in terms of defining him and differentiating between all other human uh, religious leaders by the way there's not a single religion today that has ever claimed outside of Christianity that their leader or their, uh, their founder came out of the grave uh, even well, I want to say this. Um, let me just get off on that, that topic. You're listening to That's Truth. The voice that you hear is that of Pastor Murphy, and he's teaching about how Jesus Christ is unique. His death, his resurrection, but it didn't even stop there at the resurrection. He is still working on our behalf, not necessarily for my justification, but he is ministering on my behalf what is that called and what is his role there well uh, again this is a very unique feature of Christianity I don't have any other religion that offers this solution to a dilemma that we face here I am I've got a sinful nature I come to faith in Jesus Christ I put my faith and trust in him okay a call yes pastor we have a caller calling from Bendel's thank you for calling and go ahead real quickly with your question please yeah, good night, Pastor Murphy. Good night, sir. Um, I want to throw a question, please. Um, sure. We talk about um, my spirit shall not always try with men. How can a man know that this spirit is not threatening me with him? I mean, that passage, that's in uh, Genesis chapter 6. My spirit will not always thrive with men? Yes. Well, 
Certainly in the days of uh, Noah, uh, God had reached his limit of patience and long-suffering with, with uh, humankind. Uh, man had become so sinful and uh, be, had become so intolerant, God decided to start over and he destroyed man. Uh, as far as our own situation, I think a man becomes aware that God um, no longer thrives with him when there's no longer any conviction in his life. And this is a very fearful thing, by the way. Uh, we don't trifle with God, and we don't uh, procrastinate when God speaks to us and keep doing it again and again. There comes a time when uh, God, even God's limit and his patience runs out. Uh, I've known of a situ one situation that I know of, that I, a person I knew of when I was ministering in St. Vincent. Uh, this is a gentleman that um, used to travel between the islands on a boat. And uh, he told me this personally because I tried to witness to him several times, and I I couldn't get a response to him. He wasn't. He just I just couldn't understand why uh, I couldn't get through to him. And, and one day he said to me, he said, Pastor, I want to tell you what happened to me, and I want to just share this quickly over the year. He said I was going between the islands on a small those small schooners, and he said there was a pastor that boarded the, the, the small boat between the islands, and it was a Sunday, and he said I was in the boat. And I was in the bunk, uh, just resting, and this pastor was having a service and began to preach. He said the pastor didn't know I was there, but the pastor began to preach. And he said the Lord had been troubling me for a long, long time. And uh, when the pastor preached, he said, I came out under so much conviction. He said, I wanted to jump off the bed and go forward and get my life right with God. He said, but I stayed behind that curtain. I heard that sermon, and I just did not respond. And he told me these words. He said, Pastor, God has never spoken like that to me before, and that's why I can't respond to the gospel. That's a fearful position to be in. And I think we can reach that stage where God speaks and speaks and speaks, and we procrastinate and procrastinate, or we go contrary to God's will. Trifling with God uh, could lead him ultimately to judicially blind us so that, uh, you remember what he told um, Paul, and Paul quotes Isaiah? Yeah. Hearing they would hear and not understand, seeing they would yeah. see and not see. God yeah. can still do that, and uh, he's still merciful, he's still gracious, but we dare not trifle with God indefinitely. I don't know exactly what time or when he would cease speaking to a person. But I will tell any man that when he's in church or he's in a service and God condescends to speak to him and bring conviction, count it a privilege that God has done that. God is still interested in you and God still wants to bring you to faith. But if that same man finds that he now goes to church and... Uh, Nothing happens. He's no longer under conviction. He no longer feels any sense of guilt. He's just playing games with God. I would caution that man that he may be very, very close to that final phase where God just writes him off and the opportunity for salvation is gone and gone forever. Thank you very much for that call. Pastor, any closing thoughts that you would like to mention about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? I did want to emphasize the importance of his intercessory role to our great high priest. I was trying to draw the attention that um, here, here we got saved and we still have a sinful nature. We still sin. 
So to keep our relationship with God going, we've got to deal with the sin problem. It's not that we are, we are going to lose our salvation, we're eternally safe. But his intercessory work comes into play now where that when I sin on a daily basis, he becomes the appropriation for my sin, he becomes the intercessor. So he keeps the account current so that my relationship with Christ and with God remains intact. There's no other religion that offers that. He's alive, he's interceding for us, he's praying for us. I trust that this information that we have shared this evening on the program will give you confidence, give you boldness as you go out and you witness and you be a shining light. Be sure you join us next time on That's Truth. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.